If you were to define Danny Higginbotham in one word, you'd choose honest. In his years at Stoke, he was the archetypal honest pro, encapsulating everything that was great about the Pulis years. In two spells, Higgy demonstrated all the qualities fans demand of Stoke City players. Passion, commitment, desire and honesty. And of course, a few vital goals helped cement his place as a Potter's hero. Danny's honesty doesn't just extend to his performances on the pitch. Over the course of the interview you're about to hear, you'll find he is wonderfully honest about his career and football in general. From his views on VAR to the cruciate injury that unfortunately cut short his Stoke career. That's why, when you hear him talk about the agony and the ecstasy of playing for Stoke, you know he's not exaggerating. Dave went to Leafy Cheshire to catch up with him. We hope you have as much fun listening to this chat as we did recording it. How did your first move to Stoke happen? Um, I was at Southampton at the time and a good friend of mine, one of my best friends actually, godfather to my children, he, um, he'd been at Derby with me years ago, he was like the physio. And then he had joined Stoke as, uh, what would you say, probably the fitness coach. And I was, like I say, I was at Southampton at the time, I had two years left, um, going into my final year, and they offered me a new contract, Southampton, but they were trying to be a bit clever with it. We'd been relegated from the Premier League the year before, and then Tony gave me a call out of the blue, and you know, I liked what he had to say. Um, I had a little bit of a fallen out with the people at Southampton, I was put on the transfer list, and you know, they agreed a fee with Southampton. I went down there, spoke to Tony, and sort of sold the club to me really straight away told me about what he was what he was wanting to do the plays he was wanting to bring in um, and he said that you know I'd be there I'd be the first of a few that would be coming in to try and make a big difference so when like we, we all have this like image of Tony Pulis is like probably shouts a lot probably mm. like old school kind of manager is he like that from day one is is he like the, the image of him I, barking orders I found him a, a very very good man manager um, you know, he, he, he was known for obviously bringing players that sort of had a point to prove, but that he felt could go to the next level again with, with you know, a bit of man management. And he was fantastic at that. You know, he, he especially in the, the early years as well, you know, my, my one year when I was there in the first few years in the Premier League, he'd consult you about players that, you know, he was, he was thinking of bringing in and things like that. Because it was always important to him that he brought the the right plays into the dressing room. I remember the day that I joined, because obviously I was with Ricardo at Southampton, we, we got on really well. And he asked me about him, you know, he said, you know, Ricardo or, or Dexter, Dexter Blackstock. And Ricardo would, wasn't playing at Southampton for some reason, which was a bit beyond me. So he went along to Ipswich and did unbelievably well. Uh, then he came back to Southampton and finished the season great. And I just said straight away, Ricardo, um, because well, everybody saw what he went on to do. So that was down Stoke to you, was City. it? Well, I'm not saying, yeah, part of it, I suppose. But um, so he came, I think, a few months after us, and you know, he ended up a Stoke City legend, yeah, and, and right, and rightly so, yeah. Um, so he did. He took advice from players and things like that, and he would give, he would give players a um, kick up the backside when it was needed. But the thing was with Tony, a lot of time, I think he knew the players, he knew what made them tick, um, he knew lads that he could kick up the backside, lads he could leave alone, and he had a very good way of going about things, so everybody got the message and. He created a fantastic dressing room. The, you know, everybody, the, the togetherness within that dressing room was was immense, and that was, you know, that was one of the. All right, we had good players as well, but the reason I think we had the success, especially in the early years in the Premier League, was to do with the dressing room that we had and the togetherness that we had. So, in your first season at Stoke, we kind of just missed out on the playoffs, mm. and 
did you get the sense that we were building towards something there? Yeah, I did. We, um, I remember my first when I first joined Legacy. He was telling me about all these players who were going to sign, and nothing happened. And I was obviously, you know, you, you listen to the manager and you trust him and everything they say, but I wasn't seeing any players coming in. And then I think the day we would play in Preston at home, I think we drew one over them. Lee Hendry signed. And I think that week we signed a load of players. And the first game when I believe that Tony had his team together was Leeds United away. Yeah. And I think we beat them 4 0. Mm. And we went on an incredible run. I think we went seven and a half games without conceding a goal, uh, win after win. And if the season if the season had another three games to go we'd have been in the playoffs and I have no question about it we'd have won the playoffs because yeah. by that time we were the best team in the league we were beating everybody the, the togetherness within the team the quality of the players that we had you know we were beating teams at the top of the league quite comfortably it's just that we left the run so late and like I say in my opinion if we'd have got into the playoffs that season we would have won the playoffs yeah. one of the players I thought was kind of he's kind of underrated by Stoke Fountain now but when he initially joined was Salif Jow in that yeah, team he yeah. was massive he was he was brilliant the way that the way that Tony liked to play you know defensively Tony's always been very strong and, and, and a key element of that was a defensive midfielder yeah. and, and Salif did the job that was very unspectacular yeah. so it wasn't pleasing on the eye but was appreciated by, by his teammates um, and everybody had a set role that they had in the team and I think the beauty of it was whenever there was changes that had to be made, players would come in and, and do themselves justice, you know, be part of a team that was, was being successful and winning because he the manager drilled it into us how important it was, um, how it was set up, because we did so much work on it. Every player that came in knew was expected of them and knew the knew the position in the team as well. Yeah. Um, so you obviously left to have a go at the Premier League mm. essentially when you went to Sunderland. So when you came back, were there any doubts about coming back to Sunderland? No. No, not at all. For me, um, you know, I'd, uh, being at Stoke and then having I'd, I'd had a really good season, I'd been made captain. It was a tough decision, but for me, at the end of the day, I wanted to get back to the Premier League. Um, you know, that, to go back to the Premier League, to work under Roy Keane, those were the two mm. real big attractions for me. Um, I enjoyed my time at Sunderland and I was always, you know, keeping an eye on the Stoke results, how they were getting on and things like that, because I'd still had a lot of very good friends as teammates and obviously the management and everybody behind the scenes there. So when the opportunity came up, you know, I, I sort of had an inkling that it was coming along and then, you know, I think Stoke decided to make the move on the, the yeah. final day, the, the, the transfer window. And people always say it's like I used to think it was a really cheesy thing when people say you know you have a you have a place where you belong a club where you belong because I, I never really believed that but then at Stoke you know I can honestly say that it was it was a perfect fit for me and you know to come back and be, to be welcomed back in the team in the Premier League was was brilliant and you know we had great seasons you know the season obviously in the championship before you know the lads then went and got promoted and the first few seasons in the Premier League were, were the best times in my football career you know I loved every single minute of it. You mentioned Roy Keane there. He's another manager with a bit of a yeah. tough guy reputation. Is, is he is he much different to Tony Pulis? In his all, all all the managers that I've had have been different. You know, Roy was Roy was very different in the way he approached things. Um, he would he would work out. For me, I look at managers, and the good managers are the ones that get a reaction out of you. And Roy Roy would do that. You know, there was there was sometimes I'd speak to you, and it was like it'd sort of be you know, trying to get you a response from you when you're out on the pitch. And I look back at, you know, his time at Sunderland, he took them when they were bottom of the championship, the year when obviously when it was with Stoke and they won the league comfortably and we remained in the Premier League comfortably. And sometimes I think in particular that his job is what the the job that he did at at Sunderland for me was so underplayed. Mm. I thought he had 
I thought he had a, what he did was magnificent at Sunderland to get them back into the Premier League and to and to get them stable in the Premier League again. And I think some people are quick to say that, you know, to look at his time in management. But for me, what he did at, at Sunderland was was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so obviously in our first season up, I think we lost at Bolton in the opening day of the yeah. season, and one bucky paid out on us going down. Mm. Why why were we able to stay up that season? Because I think we had, we had good players, probably underrated by a lot of people. Mm. But w- what was it about Stoke? Either the dressing room, the fans, the, it, the think, atmosphere around the club. I think it was everything. You put everything together. I think if I remember, I think we only won two away games that season. I think it was West Brom, which was a place no matter how bad we play, yeah. <laughs> you could go there and win. And and Hull towards the end of the season, we had some really battling draws at, at Liverpool um, and a couple of other places, but. For me, it was a home form. The home form was incredible. We we were a team that believed, didn't matter who came to our place, if they were going to get the three points from us, it was going to be very tough. Chelsea came and did it very well. Manchester United did it and won the game in the last minute. So Alex Ferguson said that that was probably the defining moment of their season. So I, I'd say the same about any team, any new promoted teams. It's it's all about your home form. We we believe that when we went out onto the pitch at home, we could we were a match for anybody and used to go out for the warm up and then when we were in the tunnel preparing to come out and you heard the noise outside to then walk it, it constantly made my hair stand on end for for years just because the atmosphere was incredible and you could physically see opposition players sinking they just didn't mm. want to be there and I, I believe at times before the game had started we'd won the game and we weren't a good team to play against we always used to say in the dressing afterwards hate to play against us because it was yeah. just horrible yeah. it was second balls it was long throws it was you knew it was going to be a scrap and we were a team that we had a strength, you know, whether it be set pieces, um, the way the way we were very com- uh, combative, uh, combative, sorry, and we we outfought a lot of teams at home, and and that for me was the key to it. Our home form, togetherness within the dressing room once again, it goes so far that does, and we finished very very comfortably. It was unbelievable. Are there any games from that season that kind of stand out to you as being like perhaps season-defining games or? Um, right, we can. We've really got a chance of staying up now. There, there, were, there was games earlier on in the season which really stood out. For me, the the one was when Arsenal came, and I think we beat them two 0 or two one. Yeah, we and we thoroughly deserved it. I think the signings of James Beattie and Matthew Everington in January got us over the line because that gave us a different dynamic. Mm. Um, you know, defensively we were strong. We could get a, a few goals, but you know, with with Beats, he worked incredibly well. Um, with his centre forward partner, whether it was Dave Kitson, whether it was Ricardo Fuller, Mamadi Sidibe, and Matty Everington for me, how he didn't get an England cap when he was playing at Stoke. Because for me, I didn't, you know, I, I had the, the pleasure of, of, of playing left back behind him, and I didn't see many, if any, natural, better English left wingers at the time. And, and like I say, you know, I said it openly before, how he didn't get an England cap was, was beyond me. So th- those were two massive plays, and then. In there's certain games you look at um, home games I think Blackburn was it Blackburn that season I think at home um, all around about the same time as Blackburn um, I think West Brom as well yeah. you know I think we got, we got two wins in a row there and I think when when we probably got to I don't know there was a sense that regardless of what other people thought about us we genuinely believe, we believed that we'd stay up what Tony did he create the siege mentality so all the times that people come as rugby teams all the times that certain managers would say things about mm. us, people thought, oh, that's got to work. And we loved it. Yeah. Because the more the more we believed that people didn't want us in the Premier League or the more that the, the more that 
that we believe that people looked at our style of play and said it's not right, you shouldn't be playing that football, you know. It, it was pure football snobbery. We loved it. Yeah. We just said, okay, well, you know what, you play your fancy games and when you come to our place, contrasting styles will go up against each other and let's see who wins. And more often than not, like I say, you know, apart from apart from some of the big teams, we, we beat all, we beat the majority of teams at home, which was a massive thing for us. Arsene Wenger helped us out then a fair bit, didn't he? Oh, he did. Listen, at the end of the day, I think that Arsene Wenger, I've got all the respect in the world for him. There's no doubt about it. What he's done at Arsenal has, has been absolutely incredible. He came over here and I think he changed he changed football in England, um, his methods, the way that he went about things. But, you know, in the early years in the Premier League, you know, he, he was he was outspoken about us. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, Sir Alex Ferguson came and said, it is what it is, you have to deal with it. You know, Rafa Benitez at the time when he came said exactly the same thing. You know, the Chelsea managers, all, all, all your managers, go, you've got to deal with it. That was our strength. If we'd have gone out at the Brit or anywhere and tried to play play against Arsenal the way that they play or Manchester United the way they play or your Chelsea's, we'd have been beaten after 20 minutes. Yeah. So we had to find something that we were strong at that you know, could, could get us through it. But when we played against the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United in particular in the first couple of years at home, the first year in particular, they, they, would, they would battle us and when they battled us and won that battle then their football would just take over and that was that was why they were so good them two teams uh, you obviously mentioned Ricardo Fuller there so you obviously played with a lot of uh, top players when you were at Stoke mm. uh, are there any uh, others apart from Rick that really stand out for you as like being massively important to us um, I'd say Abdullah mm. um, his first year I don't think there's many better centre-backs in the Premier League that he was just Mr. Horizontal. Yeah. He was unbelievable. Never flustered. Nothing. You know. He was. He was. He was brilliant. He. He, he was. He was incredible. And like I say, you know, I don't think there was. There was many better than him in the Premier League that first year. He was absolutely immense. Um, I think everybody played the part, but in, in in different ways. Obviously, Liam Lawrence as well. His delivery is fantastic. He had him one side, Matty Evanson on the other. Um, Rory Delap. Um, Andy Griffin, Ryan Chokers. It, it does for me the, the beauty of that team was that okay, you had a player like Ricardo Fuller that could create something from nothing. But more often than not, it was it was a collective. So it wasn't as though there was one particular standout player. It was it was a collective of why the team was able to to play so well together. It wasn't we didn't rely on individuals. You know, few people scored goals and we all defended as a unit. Yeah. Obviously, around this time, uh, Ryan Shawcross, I think, was about nineteen twenty. Mm. Just just come coming into the side I think it was only his second professional season was that yeah. in the Premier League are you able to tell as a more experienced player like this guy's going to have a future and did you notice him kind of develop throughout your he's, he's developed with, without question for me I remember meeting him the first time it was just before I left to go Sunderland I think his debut was actually my last league game we yeah, went to Cardiff and Cardiff, won 1-0 yeah. and he scored and the thing that struck me about Ryan straight away, and listen, you can have all the ability in the world, but what you've got to be able to do is want to learn, you've got to want to improve, and you've got to want to listen. And one thing Ryan did, he would always take advice from the senior players. You know, sometimes, like as I was getting a little bit older, you'd speak to some of the young lads, and you could see they were listening, but it was going in one ear and out the other. With Ryan, you you spoke to him, and he listened, and he took it all on board. And that's very much his upbringing at the club where he, where he was brought up at Manchester United. That's how it was, you know. You, if a senior player had something to say, you listen, then Ryan, Ryan's done that and now he's he's gone on to, to have and still be having an exceptional career and you know, full credit to himself. He took he took the chance, you know, left Manchester United, a lot of people outstay the welcome at a club like Manchester United, but he didn't. 
you know, he came at the right time and he developed massively under Tony Pulis as well. I'm sure that Ryan will admit that. And you know, first and foremost, it's, it's Ryan. The reason Ryan's been so successful and done so well is, is down to him. But what I think he did, I think he listened to the senior professionals and and, and the management to try to improve all the time. And he'd, he'd stay extra and do out and, and do things after. There's no doubt he had the quality, but a lot of players had the quality. But it's then taken on to the next level, and he's done that. And you know, for all the plaudits that he gets, he deserves them fully. Uh, you mentioned Ricardo Fuller as well, like capable of just producing just mm. something out of nothing, but also difficult character like West Ham away in particular. You know, yeah. he throws something like in that. How was he in the dressing room? With Brilliant. I've, I've known Ricardo for years. I was with him at I was with him at Southampton um, for a number of years, and we we had a good relationship. Me and Ricardo, we got on really well, and. I was one of maybe two or three people in, in the dressing room that could probably calm him down a little bit if he, if he got a little bit angry. Not, not, because, not because of any particular reason, just, just because you know the, he respected you and he just yeah. go, okay, Danny, yeah, okay, Danny, and things like that. But at times you, you, you wanted him to be angry. And I think when he first came to Stoke, there was anger there, but sometimes it would, it, it would overreach on the pitch because especially when we were playing the championship, defenders couldn't handle him. So the only way that they could handle him was to stamp on him. And he reacted sometimes and you know, sometimes got sent off. But then I think as he got more experienced as well, I think he realised that he took it as a compliment and the more he got stood on, the more he got beaten, the, the best came out of him. You know, for me, Ricardo was a, was a, was a player that would turn a nil-nil scrap into a one-nil scrap with something yeah. special and one of my favourite games we played was West Ham away mm. and he was on the bench and he came on and he scored a goal that only Ricardo could yeah. score it was if if one of your you know your top top players would have scored that you know your Manchester United your Real Madrid it, it would have been talked about for weeks it was individual brilliance against top class defenders mm. and that for me you know if someone said some Ricardo up as a player I'd just show that yeah, on it, just constantly show that because that was Ricardo. He he does something you like. Why did that just happen? And he just walks away as oh yeah, it's a normal thing for him to do. So that's what Ricardo gave us. And in the dressing room, he was unbelievable. There, there was not a person in the dressing room that you couldn't have a laugh with. Every, it was one and all. And, and for me, it was it was something very special. And Ricardo was a huge part of that. And you know, I knew I knew what his character was. I knew he was a fantastic player. And like when I said to Tony about signing him, because I knew, in my eyes he was a fantastic character. He'd have a little moan and everything, but you know a lot of players do. But when it comes to the pitch, what he could do, like I say, he would turn he turned a lot of nil nils for us into one nils, and he goes down as a Stoke City legend. In, in my mind, rightly so as well, because I think he's been one of one of Stoke's best players in in recent Absolutely, years. Absolutely, yeah. Um, moving ahead then to the sort of, I think it was the third season in the Premier League. Uh, FA Cup quarterfinal against West Ham. Yeah. How big a turning point was that just in our season as a whole? Yeah, it, it was it was massive. I, I have a I have a real problem now when we're seeing it in January now. A lot of a lot of teams rest players. Um, January time when they're in the cup and it's like right, we want to go out of the cup and we want to concentrate on the league because they're down the bottom. I think it should be the other way around. Why do you want to just have to concentrate on the league when you know you're in a scrap week after week after week? And it's like, right, we need to win this week, we need to win this week. All the gap's getting bigger between us and being safe. So why do you constantly want to be in that position? Why not be in that position where you go, OK, you know what, we're having a good cup run. We've got this in the league. We know we've got to deal with that. We know we've got to play better. But I'll tell you what, next week we're in the quarterfinals against X, Y and Z. And it gives everybody a little bit of an uplift. And for me, if you look from... From, from that quarter-final game, we won that game. If you look on the run that we then went on, my 
the, the best team performance I believe probably one of the best team performances I was involved in with Stoke was the week after uh, was it the week I think it might have been the week after the Stokes uh, after the West Ham game or the next game after the West Ham game was Newcastle at home when we beat them 4-0 yeah. It was a pleasure to be involved in that team. You know, everybody was at the top of the game because everybody had been galvanised because of what we just done in the FA Cup. Um, everybody knew the semi-final was coming. It was a chance to go and play at Wembley and then to go and play at the cup final. So for me, I don't believe in resting players. I, I, I really don't, especially when you when you're in a scrap because it's it's tough when you're in a relegation scrap week after week. So you know, week after week, if you've then got that little bit, I tell you what, we've got these next few games, but then afterwards. We've got a game that can get us to Wembley. Why not? Why not look at that because it can really pick your season up, and it's what it did for us that season. You scored a decent free kick in that Newcastle mm. game as well, didn't you? Yeah. You, you, I think probably your only two of the season were just straight after each other. I think was it? Yeah, maybe that season. I don't know whether that was. Um, I don't know. Do you know what? I've got. I don't know if it was that the same season as Blackburn. I think Bolton as well. Uh, right. Possibly, I'm yeah. not too sure. But yeah, no, it was it was it was a good it was a really good time. It's it's strange. It was like that was people have asked me before. That was a that was like a part of you know you, you get um, examples of like life you know. And for me, it was you know my, my second youngest was born. Then the week after that, I scored the winner in the quarterfinals. Week after that, I scored that goal um, against Newcastle. I mean, I did an international break, and then you know the. I had the lowest point of my football career, you know, doing a cruise shit in the last minute against Chelsea. So that that's football. But I look back and I was like, it, it was the most disappointing time of my career. But you know, if that's that's the biggest disappointment that, that you can have in your career, then you know you consider yourself quite fortunate. And, and okay, yeah, you miss you know the FA, the semi-finals and the final. But it is what it is, and you know it's it's something that was was disappointing at the time. But when you put it into context and everything, it's. It, it is what it is, and you don't worry too much about it. The quarterfinal itself, uh, I think we'd just been beaten by West Ham. 3 0 away, I think. Yeah. Throw 3 1, yeah. Uh, the game before, and the, there was just a massive just tension all around the, the ground, mm. at, certainly on, on the fans' behalf, anyway. Um, and obviously, Etherington missed the has a penalty saved and that's like, right, yeah. And you think, like, oh God, are we cursed? Or, you know, yeah. how, how do you manage the sort of the situation how do you manage this do you um, get nervous either? I think if I, the the week before when we got beat by West Ham I wasn't in I wasn't playing at the time I'd gone through for a patch where I wasn't playing and like you say my second youngest had just been born so I said to the manager at the time I said, if I'm not playing you know um, is it possible for me to stay behind to help out and he's like yeah no problem but just make sure you're ready for Monday um, so I was like fine no problem and obviously they got beat and then the, the big thing for us, like I say, our away form was was patchy, even even two or three years into the Premier League. Um, so it was an away performance. The home home game's completely different because we're like, right, we're playing at home. This is our pitch. Now, if anyone's going to come here and get anything from us, they're going to have to put on a good performance. Mm. That game against West Ham, losing that game, that dragged us a bit closer to the relegation scrap. And it was a pivotal game for us because we went into it. I think we took the lead. I think Hoofy gave us a lead and then they equalised and it was pretty pretty much end to end and you know we it, I'm just trying to think now I think initially the free kick that was given was 10 yards further away yeah. I've got a feeling yes. Jermaine might have taken it and Scotty Parker maybe handballed yeah. it so then it was taken closer and I would always take the ones that were closer um, and obviously you know the score had gone but then, then at the end of the game I think it, it was something that the lads were 
Well, that's absolutely buzzing because now we're at Wembley mm. and it wasn't just all about a relegation fight now mm. and we took that into the games coming up like I say went to Newcastle I think played Wolves I think there was a lot of other games where you looked at and went you know, we were an unbelievable run I don't think you know you might have to look at it but I don't think the lads got beaten from the quarterfinals to the semi-finals no, I don't nothing think. lost a game and that's what I'm saying it breeds confidence everybody then is like okay we all want to be playing at Wembley there's going to be places up for grabs, so you know, can can we grab it? And that's what I said. In fair play to him, it was it was an unbelievable finish to the season. Can you remember the actual the moment of hitting the free kick? Yeah, but it was really slow motion because I I I always what I used to do. We always used to get Ryan and Hufu. They always used to get in the wall, and I was used to say to them, "Listen, stand in the wall, stand in an area in front of the goalkeeper, because all I'm going to do, I'm going to hit it at you." I'm going to hit at you and all I want you to do is move their players mm. and to be fair I think it was more Hoofy Hoofy actually I think grabbed Sky Parker and dragged him to the side and the thing is I always said that if, if you are 20, 20, 25 yards to goal if you aim it at the wall and you've got someone in the wall that's going to drag someone out of the wall by the time the ball's come past that wall the goalkeeper's going to be unsighted and I look at Rob Green and like I don't think, he, I don't think anybody could have criticised him about that if he'd have saved that I believe it would have been an unbelievable save because mm. he saw it right at the last minute. Yeah. So I got plenty of pace and it was, it was probably the pace that beat him. But I always say, you know, it's like over the years at different places, that's that's how I've scored like a lot of free kicks is aim at the wall. People say, well, why do you want to aim at the wall? As long as you've got two of your players in there and they can shift other players around, mm. all I'm doing is aiming for where my players are because I know they're going to shift. And if it does get beyond the wall one or two things are going to happen the keeper's either going to make a save it's probably going to spill off him and someone can put it in the back of the net or it's going to deflect off the wall and could go anywhere so it was really slow motion but the first thing I did was look at the linesman and the linesman started running back towards the halfway line and then I knew that the goal was given so no, it was, it was a fantastic feeling you know, for me to, to be part of a team that, that got the team to Wembley after, after so long um, it was great to be part of and, and we held on as well and for me it was a brilliant team performance and like I say the lads then carried it on the rest of the season uh, yeah you mentioned earlier um, about about your injury and the effect it had on you like uh, how long does that take to, to get over or just to be in a place where you kind of accept it took me a while um, if I'm being honest and I've said it before I, it's a horrible thing to say and I, I said it at the time I said it in my book I wanted us to get beaten in the semi-final it was awful because I was really unbelievably jealous. I didn't want the lads not to do well, but I was like, if we get through this, that means that I would have missed missing the final as well. So it was really difficult for me to put a brave face on. Yeah. You know, it, it was really, really tough. I was delighted for the lads, but from a purely selfish point of view, I was like, if we get past the semi-final, and this was one of the main reasons, if we get past the semi-final, then I've got the final, and I've got to smile then, and yeah. I've got to turn up, and I've got to be great with the lads and everything. When in reality, I wanted to be as far away as possible from Wembley I wanted to be as far away as possible from the lads that's nothing to do with lads because I, I love I loved the lads you know they were you know they were like a big group of brothers to me you know and it, it wasn't that it was just my pure my jealousy and I was just I was just so jealous of and, and envious of, yeah. of the lads running out of Wembley so it was it was it was really tough for me to take and it was it was emotional at times as well because as a kid all you all you dreamed about doing was, was playing at Wembley and then to have that taken away from you it, it was it was tough but no, the, the lads, the lads were brilliant. You know, ringing me and, and things and, and all stuff like that constantly. So I, I was, I was gutted, but just more like on a personal level for you know not being involved. But that was was gone within. As soon as the summer come, that was gone. It was finished. Yeah, of course. Like 
had we had we won the final, um, like pe- people would have still acknowledged your important goal in the quarterfinal and stuff. Would, would that not have mattered no, to you? No. Not at all. Not at all. My my um, my final bit of of Stoke in the FA Cup that season with the quarterfinals. Nothing to do with the semi-finals. Nothing to do with the final. Mm. You know, the, the club were good enough to give me a, a cup winners medal. Um, I've had two over the years. I don't even know where it is. Right. It's it, it's in my house. I know I've got I've got one, but I don't know where the other one is because it, it just doesn't. It, that, that's not being disrespectful, but it doesn't mean anything to me because I wasn't part of it. I wasn't part of the eleven. I wasn't part of the sixteen or whatever it was or eighteen at the time. I wasn't part of it, so therefore, I have I have no no right to be to be yeah. involved in it. It's not it's not where is your. Uh, um, Whereas if you're playing in the Premier League mm-hmm. and if you play, you know, 20, 25 games or whatever, but you miss the last four or five, you've been part of that in terms of getting the points yeah. together and things like that. But for me, the semi-final and the final was, I was, was no part, no part of me whatsoever. Do you sometimes see like a Premier League winning side get all the medals and stuff? You think he only played two games? Um, no, because the, the thing is, it's each to their own. Yeah, it's each to their own. You know, you. You, you look at different people there'll, there'll be people that won't part of, that, that, that might not play a part in FA Cup success but will get a medal and they'll believe that they deserve it then mm. there's nothing wrong with that it's, it's, it's your own individual it's your own individual for me I believe that I was you know the 5-0 victory against Bolton was magnificent it was nothing to do with me the defeat against Manchester City really unlucky had, had, a, had a couple of chances themselves it was nothing to do with me I, 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 had, I had no I had no say in the way that the team played I had no say on the performance so for me I was I was nothing to do with it whatsoever it was great that the team did so well and, and you know and got to the final and really put Stoke on the map and got into Europe but as in terms of you know anything after the quarter final that was, it was nothing to do with me at all no. OK uh, going back to the league then like a kind of theme with Stoke in the early seasons and with kind of Tony Pulis teams in general the criticism that gets levelled at them is after you reach 40 points there's kind of this drop off mm. in, in form in results what happens there from a kind of dressing room point of view because I know that like you're obviously all very pro- professional yeah. in what you do and you won't want to switch off but to an extent that does happen I can honestly say I remember I think it was a second season we played Fulham away and won one now mm. And I think that then gave us more clean sheets than the previous season. I think that might have been the second to last game of the season, I think. Etherington score. Yeah, and, and then we played Man United last game of the season and got yeah. battered. But no, I, we didn't, you know, for me, I, I, I never personally, I know the lads in the dressing room didn't look at four points and go, right, we're safe, man. We, we didn't do that. It, it wasn't something that we wanted to do. Um, I, I, it never crossed my mind over at 40 points now we're fine and you know that, that Fulham game I remember going into that Fulham game and we were told you know I think it was I think we were level on clean sheets from the first year in the Premier League and this one we got that because we got, we got a hell of a lot of uh, clean sheets in the first season and then the second season like I say I think like I say I'm not 100% sure but I think that one against Fulham took us to beat the first season so therefore we did have something to play for yeah. so I people can say what they want from the outside but I can honestly say in that dressing room at Stoke there was never a point where we went oh, we've got 40 points we can't be bothered now mm. players have pride to play for I remember one of the one of the last games of the season we got battered at Chelsea yeah we were embarrassed we were unbelievably embarrassed there was no laughing and joking there was arguing in the dressing rooms afterwards we don't, I think we'd already got 40 points we were flipping you know a lot of lads were, were near enough coming to blows in the dressing room now, 
if you want to know how bothered people were after 40 points, all you needed to do is probably have a camera in that dressing room afterwards mm. to realise that we were embarrassed as a team because we got absolutely destroyed. We had 40 points. Yeah. We were comfortable, you know, and then, and then I think that we wanted to put it right. And one of the ways of putting it right was... I think we might actually have had a game against Everton the following week in that game. I think we had a nil-nil with Everton and then that might have been the season then when we then drew or beat Fulham 1-0. But yeah, from my point of view, there was no wrestling on laurels and the dressing rooms that I was part of under Tony, we never felt that ever. Uh, speaking of coming to blows in the dressing room, are you allowed to tell us what happened with Tony Pulis and James Beattie at the Emirates? Pro, pro, <laughs> what, what's been said? Um, was there a headbutt? I, I couldn't. Pos I couldn't possibly say I, no. I, don't, I wouldn't. I'd rather not. That's fine. Say talk about that one. Yeah, I'll leave other people to do that. What happens in the dressing room stays in the dressing room. Yeah, unless it's something that's funny. Unless it's something that's not, you know, not going to cause issues and things like that. Then yeah, I think it's. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all right. It was. Uh, just say it was something that you don't see that often. <laughs> leave it at that. Okay, uh, moving on swiftly. Uh, <laughs> You're a product of uh, Man United, of course. Mm. Uh, what is it? What was it about Man United, particularly in the '90s, that made them produce this just vast wealth of talent and just throughout the throughout the whole decade? Really? People, people have asked me loads of times before. Um, you know, I chose to leave United. I just signed a four-year contract, and I chose to leave at 21 because, you know, I'd had a. a a club had, had come in and had offered good money to United. It was a chance to stay in the Premier League. And while I was there, there was probably a lot of lads there. And you could probably ask them the same thing. And they'd probably tell you, you can now stay your welcome at a club like Manchester United because it's such a fantastic football club. And then when you leave, people ask you, what did you learn You know about the football-wise and things like that? For me, the biggest thing I got from Manchester United was how high I had to conduct myself as a... Um, as a as a man, as, as a human being and things like that. And what I learned the most thing is that I was so fortunate to grow up at a time and actually spend a couple of years training with, in my mind, probably close to the ultimate United team in my in my time. The likes of Cantona, Skulls, Keane, the Nevilles, Giggs, Beckham, Cole, York, Schmeichel, Stam. The list just goes on and on. Yeah. The, 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 the list goes on and on and on. So for me, to, to have the beauty of, of training with them players day in, day out, realising that they would train how they played. They would kick, they'd kick each other in training, not a problem. They knew when they were out on a Saturday. The games on a Saturday were probably easier for them than during the week. So that was something that I took from it. Don't get me wrong, you improve when you're playing around good players and things like that. But the biggest thing for me was that I, I'm the first to admit that my... I was fortunate enough to play in the Premier League for the majority of my career, but that wasn't to do with purely um, technical ability. You know, I, I like to think that a lot of it was to do with my desire, my determination and my commitment, and a lot of that was gained from growing up at Manchester United, um, being around these players, and if it was good enough for them, then it was going to be good, good enough for me. We, when we were apprentices, um, we used to get, I think, a Wednesday afternoon off every two or three weeks. That was it. and. Gary Neville and Phil Neville, you can guarantee we'd finished training. Gary Neville was now an established England international and obviously established in Manchester United. And Phil Neville was now in United's first team. They'd come and knock on our door, the apprentices door, and say, right, we're going up to do heading practice. And at first it was annoying, then you realise, well, hang on a second, these two are established players now yeah. in the Premier League at one of the greatest clubs in the world. 
one of the best teams in the world at the time, yet they're still wanting to do this. So for me, it was, yes, you learn a lot football-wise, but for me, it was how to conduct yourself for your career and the determination and desire that you've got to have. That was the biggest thing that I learned from that club. Mm. Um, you had a loan spell at Royal Antwerp, and obviously Man United got a connection with mm. Royal Antwerp. Uh, how valuable, in terms of just being a young player, how valuable are these loan spells? Do you do you learn a lot? From yeah, them? massively. Uh, for me, I went away a boy and I came back a man. You know, I went to a foreign country uh, on my own um, for the first three or four months. Nobody spoke English. It was you know they, they, they spoke Flemish, which I think was German, German, Dutch, and French all together in one. And it was really difficult. I'd stand on my own two feet. Um, at a club where everybody had their own football, you had to wash your own ball. The fans were unbelievably passionate um, and I learned a lot of life lessons very quickly. Um, for me, I, I would... Under 23s for me is, if you play more than 20, 25 games under 23s, you've got to get out. You've either got to get on loan or you've got to go and move to another club because there's only so much you can learn. Yeah. Um, if you go on loan in this country, you go to, you go to a lower league. You start, you start to realise and appreciate that it, it is all about winning. It's not about, oh, well, you played well. It's, it, it means a lot more now because you've got lads that are playing for the mortgages. You've got lads that are playing for win bonuses. And it is it means a lot for them. It's their job. And you're playing against men. For me, if you are not, like I say, if you've played a certain amount of games in the 20, under 23s and you're not playing in your first team, get yourself out on loan. I would highly recommend it. It's, it's massive. And the experience that you have, listen, the football experience might not be great at times, you might not have the best of spells, but what you learn as, as, as growing up is, is absolutely massive. And, you know, for me, you look at a lot of people, a lot of the top players over the years went on loan. People forget they went on loan before they made their mark at the football club. You look at Harry Kane, you know, one in particular, now David Beckham, he was yeah. another one, you know, Jermaine Defoe. So it's, it, it's a massive thing. And, and for me, it's something that should be used more and more. Um, uh, jumping ahead then to mm. the end of your career, uh, who who first up, who first came up with the idea of playing for Gibraltar? It was my uncle because oh. he was manager at the time. So basically, what happened? There'd been a few phone calls earlier on in my career, but they weren't um, they were not part of UEFA at the time. So therefore, they weren't getting the funding. So for them to fly me over there and put me up and play in, the, in a game. So it made no sense whatsoever. Then when they got accepted, you know, I had a phone call. I think it was 30, 34, I think it was, and played my last one at 35. And for me, at that part, point in my career, I'd gone I'd gone to part-time football. I'd had enough of full-time football. I was enjoying what I was doing off the field in terms of the media side of things. And it was something that I couldn't turn down. It was a, it was a fantastic experience for me to, to play my first game. I think it was against Slovakia, the first the first game where they were recognised as, as a proper nation. Everybody was saying you're going to get beat seven, eight, nine, nil, and I think everyone was a little bit nervous. And we to draw nil, nil. You know, it was it was brilliant, and there was a lot of tears afterwards, a lot of emotions. But I didn't understand. But it's something that they'd been working on for so long to to get um, to get recognition. They finally got that, and you know, and, and and I promised promised them that I'd play the two more games, even though I'd retired. And then people were saying to, them, well, we want you, we want you to be part of the Euro qualification. It would have been a great experience, but for me, it would have meant I would have had to keep playing on a Saturday, and that was no good for me because I didn't want to play football anymore. Yeah. I'd had enough, and it wouldn't have been fair on my family because I would have been doing something at a weekend that I didn't want to do, just to be able to go and play. And going to a club, a non-league club, whatever, and you know, you're playing for them, you're representing them, and my heart wouldn't have been in it. So yeah. 
it wasn't right for me to do that so you know it's something that I have no regrets about turning it down because I always believe you've got to be true to yourself and if I had have done that I wouldn't have been doing it for the right reasons uh, move, yeah so moving on into your, sort of your career after playing then it seems to me this might not be true but it seems to me like a lot of players choose the punditry route perhaps more so than take or the coaching route mm. is, there, is there a reason why that is? Um, I don't know it's for me I took I took up the role that I do now and I do consider it my career now um, because I enjoyed it and I always believed that like you know listen, apart from horrendous things that happen in life you know like deaths and, and Ill, major illnesses and things like that to a certain extent and that's why I don't I don't cover it all but to a certain extent I believe that everything in life happens for a reason and I always I always believe that um, like I say not major things but certain things and when I did my cruise shirt it's when I really questioned it because like, you know I'd say to my wife and things like that and my close friends that's my theory gone now you know I've been up and, up and for a reason you know this has happened but why why has it happened mm. and it was only about that time that because Stoke were in the limelight because they got semi-final and the final of the FA Cup television stations radio companies wanted me to come on and do shows with them because little old Stoke yeah. you know we're, we're in the FA Cup semi-final and the final and I didn't realise it then and it wasn't till probably about a year or two after that when you were still doing bits for these same companies that that was the beginning of it so that was how I tried to get you know, in, into, into reasoning why the injury that I got happened um, but I, I genuinely love it it wasn't a case of right oh, what am I going to do next after I finish playing football oh, this looks good it was something that I had a real passion for and I was passionate about it as what I was for playing football um, I don't miss playing I don't miss playing a minute of football I was very very fortunate for, for 20 years to, to do something that I loved and I could never call it a job but that's what it was and I walked away from the game, um, you know, delighted that, that I'd been able to have that career. But then at that point, you've got to go, right, OK, what am I going to do next? And I think that the tough thing is for, for a lot of lads that play football is what are you going to do next? You know, you, you're, in a, you're in a career, you're in a bubble, especially when you play at the highest level where everything's done for you. Financially, you get paid very, very well. And then all of a sudden, when you're cut off from that, all of a sudden you can be yesterday's news yeah. and that's that's how it is that's part and parcel of life and I think sometimes lads probably struggle a little bit to accept that and that's understandable but it's you know people have asked me you know that are now starting to get into their 30s and things like that you know what, what do you suggest for me in my career and things like that and I always say listen if you can do not retire from playing football until you know what you can do next even if it means you go and play non-league you know no matter what level it is don't retire because otherwise you, you you, you will just be lost you won't know what to do yourself have that transitional period if you can where you're still playing football but you know you're getting to the point where you want to do next and that's what happened with myself I managed to work it so that when I did retire from football it was then because football was actually getting in the way of what I wanted to, what I wanted to do next and whatever you're going to do next throw yourself into it and and if you if you do well you know then, then obviously you're going to progress in it it's the same with anything How's uh, analysing football made you appreciate uh, pundits more? Were, were there times as a player you thought, well, this pundit doesn't know what they're talking about? No, no, I, I never, I, I was never one to be like that. I never, I was never critical of pundits and things like that because in my opinion, a um, pundit, a commentator, whatever you want to call it, a journalist, they have, they have the right to, to say what they're, they're going to say, you know, in their opinion. And that's it's it's a simple it's a simple fan. Now what I try and do now when I'm doing my thing is that would I say anything that if I was playing 
and I did decide to listen to someone saying something, could I accept that? Because mm. I believe that I could accept criticism, no problem, could I accept that? And if I could, then it's fine. I, there's constructive criticism, there's, you know, you might have criticism of a team and things like that, but, you know, I, I try and stay away from the, from personally, I try and stay away from the individual side of things, you know, and, and try and focus on the positive. You know, if, you're going, if, if there is a negative in there, put the negative, but surround it with positives, because I think it's important because you try, you've got to try and be balanced. But there is no, people will say, there's no right and wrong way of being a pundit, whatever you want to do. There's, there's different aspects of it, completely different in it, and it is each to their own. And, you know, one person's opinion is going to be completely different than the others because of A, how they see things, or a lot of the times the position that they play on the pitch. I'm not saying this is my opinion, but there is a, like, a perception that there's uh, some pundits get the get the big gigs because they were great players rather mm. than oh, they're, they're really insightful or whatever. Do you think that sometimes, like, pundits who didn't have the top, top careers get overlooked? Because- I think it's changing. I do, I do believe that it's changing now. I think over the last few years, we've started to see to see a change in it. Um, don't get me wrong, if you've been a top player, you won World Cups, you won you know, European trophies, whatever it is, you will get the opportunity. There's no doubt about it because, and in front of the camera, yeah. there's no doubt about it because you are, someone turns a TV on and it's, wow, look who's on the TV. He's won this, he's won that, he's won this. So you are going to get that opportunity and write this up, but then it's up to you to prove that you're good enough. But I think things are changing now. I think that, you know, I like to believe that if you are good enough, you will get the opportunity. You know, I've been fortunate enough at Sky. You know, I've, I've grown with them. I got, you know, I got a Premier League game, I like Premier League games towards the end of the season. And I've been doing more things for them. And and I think the audience is probably of, of the mind now where always it, it always used to be. Oh, what's he won in the game? What's he done in the game? What's yeah. he won? Why? You know, I think now it's going more across the other way where a lot of people, because I think there's more people that want to learn about football now than ever. And I think as long as they're listening to a voice probably that they believe can maybe teach them something, it doesn't necessarily you know, matter as much whether they've done this or they've done that. Um, don't get me wrong. It should matter at first, especially because that's when you're going to get given your opportunity. But like for someone like myself that didn't win all them trucks and things like that, you know, I know that I have to work hard because I'm not a face that someone will put in front of the camera. People can go, oh yeah, look, he won all this and he won all that, and I'm I'm very comfortable with that. But I'm I'm fortunate as well that for me, listening studio work is great. But I love to do the commentary. You know, I love to do the commentary to look at the patterns of play and see why one team's dominating the other and things like that. So I'm, I'm fortunate in that point of view because that's my favourite thing to do. Do you ever, like, your, your whole career has been in football, like even moving on to, after playing, you're yeah. talking about football, you, you're covering various competitions. I think I've even heard you do a Stoke youth game. That, yeah, that I did that for ITV, yeah. Yeah. Do you ever need to detox from football completely? Do yeah. You ever, yeah, you have to. When when I was playing football, because when you're playing football, you are when you're a player, you're physically knackered. Mm. And I remember all my friends, whether they'd be in different types of business, the, the ones that didn't play football, they always used to come up to me and go, "I'm mentally knackered." I was like, "You want to try being physically tired? Mm. That's the worst of a lot." I couldn't have been further from the truth. Mental tiredness is on another level because if you're mentally tired, you feel physically tired. Physically tired sometimes feels nice. So for me, yeah, you know, I've, I've finished now and I've got a few weeks, few weeks to myself. So I'll go and have a whole do with my family. But f- for me, that when you're doing a game, whatever you may be doing, like I say, for me, it's mainly commentating because I love doing that and I've been fortunate enough to get the opportunity to do that. The prep, 
is as important as actually doing the game. And you know, I'll try and speak to from doing a game. I'll try and speak to both managers. Um, I was fortunate enough. I was doing the Confederations Cup for ITV, and I managed to get Anthony Hudson's number. Right. Obviously, Alan Hudson's son, Stoke City, great. I managed to get his number, and I spoke to him before the game. It was brilliant because it's them bringing insight, and you owe it to whatever team you're doing, whether it be League Two or whether it be a team at the top of the Premier League. You you owe it to anybody that's listening to treat every single game the same. And that's what I like to do. But yeah, you do get to a point where you are just you're you are mentally knackered and you need to just have that break where you just step away from and go right okay I need to have this break now because games just end up sinking into one and so you do yeah like in anything you know you need that little bit of a break and then you come back refreshed but for me after football it's, it's the second best thing that I could be doing yeah. and, and I love every minute of it and I'm, I'm appreciative of everything that I do with it and fortunate with, with the top class people that, that I'm able to work with week in week out Looking at Stoke as they are today, then mm. I know sometimes you can get into disagreements with fans on Twitter and stuff. Um, do you get the sense that some fans expect too much of Stoke? It's it's a problem that, every, that that any any promoted club that goes on to establish himself in the Premier League, you're always going to have it. It's not just Stoke City. Mm. It's, it's every team in the Premier League. We've seen it happen time and time again. I believe, and I've said it openly before. Stoke City are now an established football club. Tony Pulley's got it up to a certain level. He left, Mark Hughes came in, took it up to another level. Okay, they've had a poor season this season, but you know, they'd had con- consecutive finish, nine finishes. The problem that you then have is that, don't get me wrong, you will get, you will get a season every now and then where you will get a team that you wouldn't expect maybe finish sixth or seventh. Now, Manchester United, Chelsea, Tottenham, Manchester City, Liverpool, Arsenal, Everton. There's seven teams already. Mm. So realistically, when I look at it, I think to myself, it's, it's, it's eighth. Unless yeah. you have a freak season, the only possible team, I believe, out of them top, top seven that I've just mentioned that you could possibly get above is Everton. Mm. And look what Everton are doing now. They've got a centre-forward now that they could potentially sell for onwards of £70 million. So expectation have to be have to be put in order because people say, well, oh, we're going to yeah, we finish ninth, we want to finish eighth, we want to finish seventh. Do you honestly think that you're going to break into that group with Manchester City, Manchester United, Arsenal, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham? I don't see it because I would say to in order to do that as a football club, they're finishing eighth and ninth. You've got to go out and spend upwards of 150 million pounds. But what you've got to forget is that while you're doing that to try and catch up with them, them teams are spending that year after year. So the, the problem is when you are, and, and I remember seeing it at Stoke, when, I, when we first came to the Premier League, it was like, right, anything above 17th is fantastic for us in the first season. I think we finished 12th in the first season. I believe Tony at the time was a victim of his own success, yeah. doing too much too quickly. You know, within three years of being in the Premier League, I think it was finishing 11th, 12th, whatever it was, an FA Cup final, getting into Europe, you know, and other teams are going to have this problem now. It, it always happens, and I understand supporters, but there, there is, unless you're going to go out and spend ridiculous amounts of money, there is a ceiling. And unfortunately, your top seven teams, like I say, apart from there maybe being a freak season where a Southampton might get in there, or, or a Leicester, what we saw last year, we won't see anything like that now for another... 40 years where a team that they were disrespected mm. it was football snobbery why they yeah. won the Premier League everyone said oh it's just Leicester we'll do what we want to do 
That won't be seen again for another 40, 50 years. So therefore, there has to be expectation levels. The problem is, is when you re reach the roof or the ceiling, sorry, how do you get past that? And the question and the answer is, I think it's near enough impossible to get beyond that. I think one of the debates that the fan base has had as well is the question of like the style of play. Uh, Hughes was appointed to kind of not only improve us in terms of league mm -hmm. position, but kind of bring this kind of new way of playing in. And there was a sense last season that we weren't as exciting playing as attractive football mm. as we had done. Yeah. Do you, do you think that's fair? Um, I, did, I did a few games at, at, at Stoke this season. And yeah, probably, yeah, you might say it's not as exciting, but at the end of the day, for me, it's 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 one season. Mm. All right, people say, well, it's not been a great season. Okay, it's not been a great season, but previous to that, how many nights for me? Was it three in a row? Three in a row, yeah. You finished ninth. For me, okay, people may say, oh, yeah, well, look who finished above us, look who finished above us. Now, what I would say is, you know, Hopefully Stoke will go out and spend in, in, the, in, the, in the transfer window. I think Darren Fletcher, I think it's an unbelievable signing. I think it's an absolutely outstanding signing. Um, and hopefully there'll be a few more to, to go on with that. And, and they can kick on. The, the problem is, right, and everybody talks about it, is that had the same problem really when, when I was there. We weren't massive goal scorers. Mm. Now, to get Stoke, we talk about the next level, to get Stoke to that next level, you want to go and get an out-and-out -out goal scorer? Talking twenty-five million pound—that's that's an unbelievable yeah. sum of money. You know, when you look at how much, how much a, a, a proven centre-forward goal scorer—you know—unless you're fortunate enough to get one on a free, they they don't they don't come cheap, or they may be coming towards in the you they, they don't come cheap. It's as simple as that. So, and you know, listen, I'm not saying that the, that the club won't go and spend that on a player, and let's not forget. You know they have they have spent some money, so they're willing to spend money. You know, and, and hopefully, like I say, you know they, they can go and they can go and strengthen in, in key areas um, this summer and, and have a strong season next year. Um, but it is difficult because you do get to that to that ceiling, and what happens is when you get to that ceiling and you can't you can't get above that eight or ninth. Sometimes you may drop back a little bit, but then you try and kick on again. I think Stokes thing, and I'm sure Mark Hughes would say the same thing, is that try and have a good start to the season. Because if, if they could, if they could start well, they probably could finish eighth yeah. or something like that. Because you know they, they have that in, bit in between the season where they just fly up the league. An issue that also gets talked about is like young players breaking into the first eleven. It's becoming, it seems to be becoming harder and harder for, for academy players to break into a Premier League side. Like how how would if if you're 19 years old and you're sort of on the fringes at Stoke, so yeah. what what do you need to do? Well, yeah. Aside from obviously half the talent. Yeah, obviously half the talent. And what, what you've got to do, I think you've got to understand, are you in the manager's plans, full stop? Mm. Are you not in the plan, uh, the manager's plans at the moment, but could well be in the future? And then you've got to see where you are and then, you know, look look to go out on loan. The one thing is, is that like, you know, the, the um, England under 21s, you know, there's, there's, there's a few players in that team that are playing week in, week out in the Premier League. The problem is, right, and, and I stand by it, um, until someone can prove me wrong, you know, there's, there's been a thing which it's been said over the years. Well, foreign managers coming in, and foreign players coming in, not good enough, and not as good as the, the, the English players that are growing up. The one thing I would say is that if you take your top six, I think Everton have shown that they will bring youngsters through and things like that, and they're shown to be good enough. But if you look at the top six clubs this season, 
and over the last five years players that are deemed probably not quite good enough to play for the top six teams and are released at 1923 that their contract expires and they're released how many of them go and get a Premier League club at the age of 1920 how, how many go and get a club in the Premier League are you going to tell me I don't know of any <laughs> So maybe if you look over the last five or six years, there may be one or two, two or three. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say five. So therefore, if, if a player leaves a top club, a team that are in the top six leaves a top club, why is none of the so-called lesser, lesser teams in the mm. Premier League going to get them? They're free, the wages won't be astronomical, and they've gone up in the Premier League. So surely it's a no-brainer. Yeah. Go, and give them a, go and give them two years, but they're not saying it's good enough. Instead, we're going and spending a lot of money on championship players yeah. and League One players that are coming into the Premier League and taking it by storm. Mm. You only have to look at Deli Alley, one of one of the main lads. You know, J- Jamie Vardy, he came from the championship. The list goes on. You got um, Charlie Austin. The, the, the list would go on and on and on. So for me, rather than ask the question of why are our young Premier League play, why are our young players not getting an opportunity? The question I would add to that is, why if we if we look at the ultimate teams in the Premier League, your top six teams in the Premier League, why when players are getting released from them at the age of 19, 20, they're bringing in the Premier League, why is no other lesser Premier League team picking them up? Because they were free. Yeah. Not going to be big expenditure, like I say, growing up in the Premier League. I'm not talking about your Cleverleys, your Welbecks, your, your Ackies that have had experience yeah. and are being bought for money I'm mean, about lads that have been released yeah. why don't anybody gamble on them my own honest opinion would be Premier League managers even near the, near the bottom end of the Premier League don't believe that they're good enough um, going back to Stoke then um, from what from what you've seen of us recently uh, how do we get back to defending better because there have been a lot of four goal losses yeah and that's one of the big criticisms as well, is that we're just not as resilient at the back. I think one of the things is is that there's not been, I think at times, and through, through, through no fault of, of Mark Hughes, it's not been a settled back five. And that is, believe me, it's a huge thing. The best defensive that I've been involved in has been a settled back four, because if I'm playing left back or centre back I know my centre back's weakness I know his strength he knows my weakness he knows my strength I know if he's going to win a ball I know if he's going to lose the ball goalkeepers you know it's having that settled back five for me is a big thing and don't get me wrong I think Stoke at times can play open you know the, when, sometimes when you are playing that attractive football you can be open mm. you can be expansive I think the worrying thing from, from Stoke's point of view and they'll want to put a stop to it is that when they did concede two a lot of the times it would end up three or four and that just comes down to, to communication and, and organisation, I guess, within the team. Um, but I think Mark Hughes, the one thing he would long for is a settled back five. Yeah. Because the teams that have that continuity are the ones that seem to be stronger. You've got to remember, I thought Lee Grant coming, he got player of the year. I thought he was absolutely immense. You know, then Butland came in, who for me, I think he'll be England's number one in a certain amount of time. Um, he's got all the attributes, he's an outstanding goalkeeper. Uh, seems to carry himself really well. Um, you know, he's he, he's going to go on and on and going to be a fantastic goalkeeper. So if 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 you can have him in goal, and then you have a settled back four. That's the key to it. But like I say, I'd love to know how many times Stoke were able to play same back five last yeah. season. And I think it wouldn't have been as many as probably what people think. Get stability, and then hopefully that comes. And we also had the situation where 
we go from a back four to a back three yes. game to game. That, that's, that, that can be difficult, but there will be a reason behind why Mark Hughes was doing it. That could be down to injuries. You know, sometimes teams are forced to go to a back three because of injuries, because you know they might not have natural full-backs that are available to play, so therefore you play with near enough wingers at times. So I say ho hopefully you know that's something that that will be addressed and have a little bit more lookers in terms of the injury and they can have that settled back five. Yeah. Um, you're a big exponent of 4-4-2 yeah. as a system. Why do you think it is that it seems to be kind of looked down on perhaps not as highly regarded as, as it once was? Because I think I think people look at it as a as a as a, as a system of people people look at it as a system of dinosaurs yeah. which in my opinion is ridiculous listen you only have to look at last season you look at this year Monaco and Monaco they did really well in the Champions League played a 4-4-2 um, Atletico season before played 4-4-2 nearly won the Champions League Leicester season before played 4-4-2 won the Premier League um, so I think there's two things really I think there's very few out and out wingers now so I think it becomes more difficult and what you have to do if you're going to play 4-4-2 one of your strikers has to be very very unselfish because they've got to make that fifth man in midfield pick up the defensive midfielder uh, but for me it's brilliant it enables you to get 2v1s it enables you, enables you to play with two centre forwards um, but I just think that we are to a certain extent I've said it before and I'll say it again I think there's a lot of snobbery in football and 4-4-2 is seen as Old, old school and, yeah. and old school's not good enough so for me I'm the biggest advocate for 4 for 2 and I, I stand by it um, for against any system if it's played correctly we're seeing a lot of times now teams playing with a with a back 3 um, and it is it is each to their own but for me like I say if it's played correctly and you have the right players in that 4 for 2 for me is 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 the best system video refs oh no don't get me into that oh, no. no no I'm fine <laughs> but yeah, we could be here for half an hour I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Right. The VAR, I think it's absolutely shocking. I've made my, I've made my feelings known on ITV and, and my column in the newspaper, on Twitter. It's People talk about VAR. Now, for me, you have where we are at the moment. This point, I'll, I'll say, but where we are at the moment is, is one place. Where we are, where VAR is another place. But in between, there's about another three stages you've got to go through. VAR is only any good if it's factual. If it's open to interpretation, um, if it's if it's if it's opinion, you cannot have VAR because if you and me, right, you're refereeing the game, and I'm in I'm in the truck with three other people. What happens if you have an opinion on something that is subjective? If it's subjective, you're wasting your time. So therefore, you could have a different opinion than me in the truck, than another lad in the truck, and another lad in the truck. VAR is only good, in my opinion, for mistaken identity, goal line technology, which we've already got, and off-the-ball incidents. Yeah. So if you're going to bring it in, probably bring it in for two things. Simplify the rules for referees. I've just done the Confederations Cup for ITV. It was embarrassing, VAR. Absolutely embarrassing. It was just to the point of like, yeah, watching the final, and Chile had a play that got yellow card. The referee went to VAR, and I thought to myself, wow, I'm going to have to go on. I'm, I'm going to, someone's going to come to me and say, right, what do you think about that now then? I'm going to have to go on and say, listen, hold my hands up, VAR's coming in, it's worked really well here. 
unbelievable. It was an elbow in, in the face, uh, a Chile player on, on a German player. And I'm thinking to myself, it's going to work now. Puts his video evidence thing up. That obviously means if that happens, I think that means the people in the truck believe that it's a red card offence. Referee runs over, takes forever, runs over, looks at the television screen. I thought, okay, at least he's going to come up with the right decision. He gave me a yellow card. And I'm thinking to myself, Please tell me the VA, the people that are doing this VA must have told me he's actually looked at the video evidence and he's still seen his yellow card. So imagine, I'll give you I'll give you an instance now. So imagine that happens in the Premier League, right? Same situation happens, referee then goes and looks at his video screen, comes out, gives the player a yellow card. That player gets a yellow card. Nothing can happen. Referee hasn't seen it, that player can get retrospective action. Yeah. If he's not been booked. Now all of a sudden this lad getting a yellow card, he must have thought hundred percent he was getting a red card. He gets a yellow card and if that's in the Premier League, it's like, oh happy day, he's got a yellow card, not gonna get retrospective action. It's a farce at the moment. You can't use it for offside because it's it's too much open to interpretation. What are you, what, what's a linesman gonna do? You're gonna get to the point where a linesman's gonna be so fearful of putting his flag up that he's gonna leave his flag down just in case it was offside. Because at the moment if a refer if a linesman putting his flag up, he knows that it could go to VAR. If he puts his flag up, referee blows a whistle to stop the game, you can't go to VAR, what are you, what are you gonna do? You're gonna to say to a player, I'll find yourself in this position again. Yeah. Just end up comical. You can't use it for um, trying to think what else. You, you can't you can't use it for offside. That's the biggest thing for me. Penalties, it's a difficult one as well because penalties once again are open to interpretation. Handballs are open to interpretation. The problem that you're gonna get if and when it comes into the Premier League is that you're gonna have say for example you've got Stoke Stoke City versus Liverpool one week. A referee goes to VAR, a decision is made, player's given a red card. The next week, Manchester United v Leicester. The referee goes to VAR, very similar foul. A yellow card's given. Mm. It's going to create uproar. So if you're going to use it, you can only use it on factual evidence. So you can use it for mistaken identity, goal line, which we've already got, and off the ball incidents. The rest, no. I think it's been absolutely shocking from what I've seen so far. I think even on a just purely watching football perspective, like Stoke score a goal in the last minute, go up, cheer like, oh, we've got to wait 20 seconds. The passion goes. Yeah. The passion of the game goes. And for the viewer, you have, nothing's going on. The only time you know whether a goal's been given or not is if maybe they put the letters up on the screen, but it takes a whole of the passion out of the game. You think about last minute goals being scored. You know, I know it's, it's a while back, but Martin Tyler, Aguero, yeah. gets QPR. All right, I know it, it was fine. It was a goal that was always going to be given. But imagine something had happened in the build-up and the referee went, I've got to do the square, I've got to do the square, we've got to go to the VR. And Martin Tyler's like, OK, we've just got to wait to see if Manchester City have just scored a goal that's won in the Premier League. And I was like, oh, yes, they've won the Premier League, well done. I'm just like, yeah. football is a very passionate sport. And for me, goal line technology is where it should end. That's what separates football from so many other sports, the debate. People say, oh, well, yeah, well, clubs are losing millions and millions of pounds and things like that. OK, we'll simplify the rules because there's too many rules over to interpretation. If you do that, I guarantee there won't be such a need for VAR. Yeah. OK, finally then, um, your fondest memories from, from being a Stoke player? Fondest memories? There is so many. Um, being, being part of that, of that group was immense. Um, walking out every Saturday. I used to I used to go home on Friday after training, especially when we're playing at home. I was like a kid waiting for Christmas Day. Could not wait for the next day. Go out for the one walk and then being in the tunnel, and then you hear the music and walking out, my hair stood on end, 
for two half, two and a half, three years. No doubt about it. So he's been part of that. He's been part of a club that 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 club at the time, still to a certain extent, it mirrored me and so many of the lads that played for the club. And that's why when you go back, what, just over a year ago, Andy Wilkinson's testimonial, you know, people are expecting what, ten, eleven thousand? There's near enough twenty thousand people there. Because their players from that era they went hand in hand with, with with the supporters, and I think the supporters had a real connection with them. Place, so that was a big thing for me. I think for um, team-wise, I think you look at Liverpool away when we drew nil nil. Yeah. Stephen Gerrard had a goal dislodged after about five minutes. I think if that had been given, it could have been ten nil. Um, players, I remember. I can't remember it, whether it was whether it was Courty or Sonko that had to go off. They got a concussion because they got the ball in the face. Leon Court, yeah, he just got. <laughs> he didn't even know. I didn't even know what day it was, that's from the performance of nil-nil. It could have been, like I say, it could have been 10-nil, the shots on target was, was a joke, uh, and shots blocked. Um, them games, Arsenal obviously at, at home, the FA Cup run. Um, just being, for me, the biggest thing that I look at Stoke City is that my, my very first game, my very first game for Stoke City in the league, was against Southend. Luke Chadwick had to go. Yeah. He, he got stretched. <laughs> he collapsed. He spent the night in hospital and turned up on the Monday. And he played on the Tuesday. And I think the, the, Tony said to him, "Listen, if you play on the Tuesday, you can have Wednesday, Thursday off, and cut his head open on Wednesday and <laughs> Tuesday against Derby." So that was my first game, and my last game was against. It was in the Europa League and it was against... Oh, th- this sums up my, my career at Stoke and grown with them. First game, South End away. Last game, Besiktas away. And that for me, you know, it's... For me to, be, to be, be part of such a special club, to grow with that club, that was the biggest thing. So, yes, there was a lot of individual memories and things like that, but there was too many that the people behind the scenes, you know, I love Winnie and John, the kit man and the kit lady. and It, just, it was just... It's just an unbelievable team to part of, an unbelievable part of my career that I'm so grateful for. And the gratitude that I have for being part of that club is unbelievable because that comes around once in everyone's career. If you're that lucky, where you have a group of players, a football club where you know you mirror that football club. So for me, like I say, the biggest thing I can say is Southend away on my first game and my last game for Sixers away in the Europa League. And that sums everything up for me because there was too many good things and it's a club that is close to my heart and a lot of people there still at that football club are as well.